In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory is an elusive trait. Almost always when we try to consider glory, we mistake it for something else. Often when we think of someone or something as glorious, we are actually recognizing something more like a mere spectacle or even begin to entertain the vice of vainglory. With spectacle, we become entranced by what most easily catches the eye. It is sometimes very tall or broad, very loud or bright, famous or enticingly exclusive. It is exhilarating. We feel a rush in its presence. But this is not glory. Vainglory entices us to label as glorious what falls short of true glory. Sometimes we can attribute fame to what ends up being villainy. Other times, we simply make a fuss over mediocrity. We adjust the bar of excellence so that we free ourselves from the obligation to pursue it, or from even the healthy shame of failing to attain it, which might direct us toward continual growth. Finding glory is challenging because we only barely have eyes to see it here in the infancy of everlasting life. Glory is substantial, but it is not a spectacle, and we are easily distracted. Glory cannot be faked or contrived. It is not a performance in the end. Genuine glory can only be the attribute of a true self. To be glorious, and not merely spectacular or vainglorious, necessitates that we become who we truly are and not, not attempt or pretend to be someone or something else. Spectacle and vainglory are much safer in our minds because they focus on the superficial and are easy to manage and curate and control. They do not require anything enduring difficult, or sacrificial from us. We can observe this, I think, in our cultural sense of celebrity. What we celebrate in our icons reflects our aspirations, or perhaps the lack thereof. We celebrate genetic lottery winners whose attributes we cannot imitate even with a lifetime of practice. Or perhaps we emulate royalty when it is impossible for almost everyone to become them. Celebrating something beyond our reach provides a sense of security that imposes no real obligation on our lives. Much more challenging, yet almost always forgotten, would be the celebration of someone like a saint. But if we did that, we would remember that the scriptures, in fact, call all of us to be saints and that the vocation of a saint is nothing less than, as T.S. Eliot noted, a lifetime's death in love, ardor, selflessness, and self-surrender. This is the calling, in the end, on all of our lives. But it is so costly that often it seems preferable to fantasize about feats that can never be ours at all. 
The gospel lesson sheds light on this struggle to choose between glory and vainglory. The setting for it is a Sabbath meal, which the law and the prophets of the Old Testament envisioned as an opportunity for faithful Israelites to engage in table fellowship with those who could not provide for themselves. It was always meant to be an image and to reflect the loving kindness of the Lord. However, by the time of Christ, Sabbath dinners had evolved into a way to exert social influence and often as a way to exclude social outsiders. For Jesus to receive an invitation to a Sabbath supper in the house of a Pharisee should have been a genuine gesture of honor towards an itinerant rabbi. The Son of Man, after all, had no place to lay his head. However, from the lesson, it was clearly a display of social power. As Jesus points out in his healing miracle, the Pharisees had lost the true meaning of the Sabbath, seeing it as an occasion to elevate themselves rather than as a time to commemorate the week's labor with gratitude or as a time to anticipate the Messiah's healing of the broken world. This lavish feast had missed the point, even as many clamored to get the best seat available at it. But then, as Jesus had cured the man with dropsy, he then directed his attention to healing the Pharisees' spiritual blindness, to shaking loose their spiritual malaise, through a parable concerning this very clamoring for seats at a feast. As we, the listeners of this parable, engage with its message, though, it is imperative that we exercise caution against deriving a kind of simple and crass pleasure from witnessing the haughty being humbled while the underprivileged and underdogs rise to victory. Reveling in the correction of the self-righteous can inadvertently reveal in us a form of self-righteousness. And this is both unseemly and ultimately unstable and self-defeating. Paradoxically, we can become guilty of the very fault we so fervently denounce. And this is precisely the Pharisees' recurring error. But we can also misread this parable and by doing so make faux humility a kind of pious-looking game. This is especially common, I think, in Christian contexts. We all know that pride is a sin. And so we adopt lowliness as a way of gaining status in the community that does not value pride, or even as a means of exerting a manipulative influence over others. False humility, however, is no less a form of vainglory than arrogance or even infamy. And as long as we obsess about gaining honor and status, whether we seek it high or low, we will ironically continue to lose them both in the ways that really matter. The point of sitting in a lower place at the feast is that it is the place of minimal distraction where one can attend to what is most important in the Sabbath meal and to enjoy table fellowship with the host and with the other people gathered at the table. It takes us away from being obsessed with ourself and where we are and allows us actually to enjoy the people we are with.
sitting in the lower place is not mock humility with the hope of advancement. It is the sign of a heart that is present for the right reasons, that comes to enjoy fellowship and not just the projection of self on one's fellow attendees. Here, and only here, are we free from the fallacy that one's position at the table confers an intrinsic status. Whether we occupy a prominent or inconspicuous seat at the table, what matters is that the host knows us and that we are known by the others at the table. It is not the location of our seat, high or low, that should be the primary focus. It is the depth of connection around the table and ultimately with the host that bestows any lasting significance. The host's recognition, the host's invitation, is how we are known by him. And ultimately, in the end, only the host knows where each person belongs around his table. And so fantasizing about it, aspiring after it, is simply a waste of time. God's knowledge of us alone causes the clamoring at his table to cease. As St. Paul puts it, quote, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is not merely a call to pleasantness among the brethren. Walking together in this way, in a way that upholds and honors each other, is how we begin to practice living in proximity to each other's glory long before it becomes tangible to our sight. It is also, in the meantime, as we are still being made whole, how we practice gentleness with one another's frailties, which, like glory, we barely understand. As C.S. Lewis remarks in his essay, The Weight of Glory, we are each right now, when we encounter each other, becoming either something so glorious that if we were to see it now, we would be tempted to worship it, or else something so terrible that if we were to see it now, we would be tempted to despair. We gather together every Sunday in the movements of the liturgy because these are how we would act toward God and one another if we could perceive each other's glory in its fullness. We practice now by faith what we will one day know by sight. But the Spirit of God indwells us at the core of our being, giving life to us there from the Father, and then forming that life into the glorious likeness of Jesus. The Spirit always knows who we truly are, and is both shaping and revealing that identity as we gather in Christ before the Father. It is enough for us this morning to simply look around and consider how, out of all the places we could have been this morning, we have been brought here together to partake of communion with the Lord. There is in that observation alone enough evidence that grace unto glory is with us. It has gone before us, prepared a place for us, attends us, and will follow us as we leave here. 
the good works that the God of that grace sets before us begin now with how we treat those who are closest to us, both in our homes, but perhaps starting right now with each other in the pews. If we can momentarily forget ourselves and look outward and look upward, we will be given the gift of ourselves again as the Lord gives us the gift of himself. We will, in that moment, be glorious, even if our eyes cannot see it. But if we refuse that call, if we disdain it, if we get distracted from it, then no amount of posturing or self-confidence can mask our vainglory. What we become in the mystery of the sacrament this morning is a sign that is set quietly in the midst of a vain and busy world. That world may not take note of what is happening in its midst here, but that does not make it any less real. The most objectively glorious thing that happens on any given Sunday morning is the presence of Christ on all the altars of all the churches. And next to the blessed sacrament of the altar, the most glorious thing that you will encounter this morning is the person sitting next to you in the pews. As we profess in the creed, there will come a day when all veiled glory will be unveiled. All appearances will be drawn back like a curtain, and there will only be what is. What we, we will see then, each other, in our unmistakable and unrepeatable glory, as we will see God as he is, as only he can be in our midst. And then we will sit down in a place that we know without any anxiety or imposter syndrome to be our own, at that last great table, and rest finally at the last from all of our striving to enjoy with gratitude the supper of the Lamb, the wedding feast that has no end. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.